Bibles, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 3, and we are privileged again to come back to this little letter of Paul's, to, or rather of John's, I should say, of 1 John, and it seems like a long, long time since we've been in this book, and a lot of things that have been going on. Uh, as I said a moment ago, I'm happy to see all of you tonight. There was a lady who came to me several months ago and asked me if there was a night that we could have where the ladies could have a Bible study here uh, here at the church. And uh, this is not uh, two ladies that came to me just recently and that are handling the Bible study that's going to begin on Tuesday night or starting up again on Tuesday night. I'm so thankful that we're doing that because that is an important thing for our church. It always is to study the Bible. But this person came to me about four or five months ago and asked me, if we could have a Bible study uh, sometime during the week for the ladies. But I noticed something about that person, that that person didn't come to Wednesday night services, rarely saw them on a, at a Sunday morning service, and so I thought that was a little bit odd because I didn't understand what is it that you would, I mean, as good as a women's Bible study would be and as good as a, a men's Bible study would be, what would you learn there that you can't learn here? And I think it's very important for us as members of the church for all of us to come together and be uh, present for the services of the church and hear God's Word taught. And I promise you, if you listen carefully and if you fill out those listening sheets and do a little bit more than just, you know, fill in the blank, but take some extra notes as you go along, then I promise you you're going to learn something. I, I do believe it's going to help you in your knowledge of the Bible. It will be increased. And that's not because I'm the one that's the teacher. It's because that's the way God works. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. And it's the nature of God's Word to be penetrating and and to be understood through the Holy Spirit's guidance. If you're a Christian, you have the same Spirit in you that I have in me. And your ability to understand the Word of God is not a natural faculty anyway. That's something that comes from God. God gives you that. It comes because of your faith in Christ. Paul spoke about that in 1 Corinthians. He said in the second chapter, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so your ability to learn the Scriptures is based upon the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And if you're interested in the Word of God, which I do believe that every single Christian ought to be, you need to be interested in the Word of God. If you come here, you're going to learn from these services. And if there's uh, some reason that you're not, then there's another factor involved. It may be that you're not listening. I don't know what it is, but if you listen, I promise that, and you apply it, you will learn something from God's Word. So for the person that continually asks me for another Bible study, then I would just have to ask, if you don't come to this service, what are you going to learn from, from another one, from some other type of study? But I'm glad that we have the women's Bible study. Sometime I hope that we're able to get uh, somebody that could conduct a men's Bible study as well. We've been asked about that, and I think those are really good things. Brother Gary conducts prayer meeting on Saturday, and I just thank the Lord for all the people here that uh, volunteer, just are concerned about the work and reaching people. Now, I want to take that principle, though, of the Spirit uh, living inside of each of us, and think about that for, for just a moment. What does the Spirit do? 
Now, I've already said just now that the Holy Spirit opens up your mind to spiritual matters. That's according to 1 Corinthians. But that's not all that the Spirit does. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life makes radical differences, great changes in your life. And that change is so radical that the Word of God calls it being renewed in your mind. And it speaks of it as becoming a new creature in Jesus Christ. And this is one of the things that John is, uh, John is honing in on as we're studying here in 1 John, and that's the differences that the Holy Spirit, that Christ living inside of you, makes to a person. And if there hasn't been a change in your life, then there is no spiritual thing that's actually happened to you. You haven't been saved. Now, we've stated all of that in another way as we're studying 1 John, and we've called these tests test of your salvation, test of your Christianity, and they appear throughout this epistle. And they run along the lines of doctrine, of morality, and in more modern terms, what we would call our social networking, a social test, which is a test of love. Now, the first part of chapter 3 that we've already studied deals with a moral test. And John's reasoning runs along two lines. The first is holiness based upon our belief that Jesus Christ is going to return. And then the second runs along Trinitarian lines, bringing the complete Trinity into this, that because God the Father has given us his law and because Christ's work and the sacrifice for sin and because of the Holy Spirit's work in indwelling the believer, our righteousness is guaranteed. And so basically, he's telling us that if all of this is working together, if God has designed it this way for salvation to bring us into conformity with Christ, then we should be in the process of that conformity. And if we're not in that process, then we really haven't been born again. Now, the Word of God tells us that when we're saved, God begins a good work in us, and he will continue that work. Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul says, "...being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ." So that's the argument that John's given us in the first part of the chapter. And now having completed that argument, and it's going to come up again because we have these recycling tests over and over again throughout 1 John. It will come up again, but now he moves on to another test. He's recycling the themes, looking at it from different angles, and he brings us back now once again to the social test. Now, if you'll look at verse number 11 in 1 John chapter 3, it says, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, who slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous." Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now we can see here from what we've read, that in this portion of Scripture, John comes back to that same black and white argument that he is so 
prone to do. We're accustomed to this if we've seen it in the other parts of this little letter. And the problem here is, is the claim versus the reality. The problem is that there are people who claim to have a relationship with Christ, but there is no demonstration of that relationship. They don't have the identifying characteristics of Christianity. Now, if you remember, when we talked about this before, I asked you that if you were going to name the one major feature of Christianity and about Christ, what would that be? And I believe that 99% of people, even those who know nothing at all about Christ, except what they've heard somebody else say, well, we think or we know that the defining characteristic of Christianity is love. Christianity, Christ is characterized by love. On the day that I was originally working on this sermon, trying to put it all together, uh, I received an email from Gary Moline, and uh, he was writing to me about an article that he saw on crosswalk.com, and it was uh, concerning the top ten searches on their website. I don't know if you're familiar with that website, but you can go there and you can learn lots of things, get information about the Bible, look up scriptures, get uh, reading plans, Bible verses of the day, and things like that. But on their site, the number one scripture that people researched was John 3.16. And that's not surprising to us, because if you've ever been to Sunday school, even one time, I mean, people that just went once... Uh, as a kid or whatever, they got that verse as a memory verse or, or somebody said something about it, they've heard about it, they've read it. Anybody who's ever come in contact with Christianity knows John 3.16. And what's it about? It's about love. And so they know that Christianity dwells on this. This is a feature of Christianity. And it's not uncommon for someone who's not a Christian. If they see someone who claims to be a Christian, and they see a bad attitude in that person, and, and they see them go off on somebody in a fit of anger, it's not uncommon for them to say, well, that's not very Christian. Why do they say that? Because they know Christians are characterized by love. Now, if you look here at verse number 11, it says, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So what he's saying there is that this is fundamental. Go back to the very first thing that you ever learned about being a Christian, and right there, number one on the top of the list is love. Now, John is dealing with the intrusion of false teachers that denied fundamental aspects of the faith. We found out in that first chapter that they denied the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we've also found out that they, they denied the change of a, in a believer's life, the, the change in the activity of a person who claims to be saved, that he changes from one who practices sin to someone who practices righteousness. And of all the things that these people would have denied, they denied this, this characteristic of love, the principle of love. Those who are born again, the Word of God teaches, will not hate people, they will love them. So that's the declaration here. It's a foundational principle. And John tells them, when you run into somebody who is not teaching those foundational principles, the very first things that you learned, then you know that they can't be Christians. Now, I want to take that thought and expand on that for just a few minutes before we go on. And we need to get this down first. Number one on your listening sheet tonight is the axiom of truth. If you are looking for the truth of Christianity, you're not going to find it in some new teaching, something that's different than was taught by Christ and the apostles. You see, the truths of Christianity are age-old truths. There's nothing new there. There are no discoveries of new truth in Christianity. 
And when, I, when, I was studying, when I'm studying for sermons, I sometimes run across a different angle to the Scriptures, a different approach to some particular argument. Sometimes I'll find something that's new to me or fresh to me in the sense that I haven't seen it approached in that way. Now, it might be a little bit different from what I've seen before, what I've heard before, but I know how to take and to validate those arguments by the Word of God to see if that's what the Word of God teaches, if it supports it. And if the Scriptures support it, then I may repeat it to you. I'll tell you what I know, what I've learned from it, but I'm always very cautious about that. I'm very cautious about new angles. And if I see something that's a new angle and it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's foreign to Scripture, or if someone comes to me and they say, this was revealed to me, I received this from a supernatural source, then I'm going to reject that right up front. I'm not going to spend any time with that. And sometimes I do have people that come to my office, some people that will attend a service, and they want to tell me something that God told them. God spoke to me in a dream, or I saw Jesus in my bedroom. You know, that's a common one I've heard. I saw Jesus in my bedroom, or I physically felt the touch of God, felt the unseen hand, and God told me this. And I'll be standing at the door, and people tell me things like that. I just smile, and I've just shut them out right then. Because I know that's not true. I know that's not God's method. That's not the way that God speaks to us today. He speaks to us through his word. And if you haven't spent time in God's word to find out what God has already revealed, then why do you think that God's going to come to you and reveal something new to you? If you haven't spent time in the already revealed word of God, then God's not going to come to you and tell you anything. And I would say that 100% of the time, those kinds of people have little to no knowledge of the already revealed will of God. And how do I know that? Because I know if they did, they wouldn't have to have God tell them anything. Anything. He wouldn't have to speak to them in that way because they've already found it out in the Word of God. That's where God's will is sought and found out. It's found out by careful consideration of God's Word. God does not reveal new truth to us today. Now, you apply that to what John says in this scripture, and he says, for this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning. In other words, this is the message that you've already been taught. So you go back to what Jesus said, you go back to what the apostles said, and if somebody comes to you that's something other than that same message that they gave, then you know that they didn't get it from God. Now, you see why we have to have this objectivity? It's because if we don't, then we're going to run into the same problems that John ran into. Somebody came along telling the people something different from what they heard at the beginning. It was a new message they said they got, and it didn't jive with the old message. And when that happens, you just have to shut that out and say, it's not of God. And yet this is what we find in different religious movements today. It's not a new problem. It's an old problem. John faced it. So you have these cults that get started up, and they always start out with some new revelation of truth, or what they call truth. Joseph Smith said he found some golden plates, and an angel appeared to him and helped him to interpret them, and so thus we have a New Testament of Jesus called the Book of Mormon. All the cults are like that. The Jehovah Witnesses have their watchtower, and what they write in the watchtower is as authoritative as Scripture, is equal to Scripture, and even above Scripture if it needs to be. And on that basis, you can look at Roman Catholicism, and you can see it's not better than the cults on that issue. And that's because, in their view, the church is above Scripture. 
that the scriptures receive their authority from the church instead of the church receiving authority from the scriptures. And so you have all these confounded practices that they have that are not found in God's word, and it's based upon new revelation. Just because they decide to do it, they do it because they are the ones who are the authority. And that is precisely the problem that John addresses with this statement. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. So he's telling them, stick with the message of God's word, because that's the only authority. And in the first chapter, John nails down the authority in verse number 5. He says, this then is the message that we heard from him and declare unto you. We got it from Christ, and we're telling it to you. And if it goes outside, outside of the bounds of what we heard from Christ, then you don't count it. So Christ is the authority, not the church, not the pope, not some self-appointed prophet like Joseph Smith. Discount all of that if it hasn't already been told. God doesn't change truth. Truth doesn't change. Sin doesn't change. Righteousness doesn't change. But if you claim to know Christ and you don't change to line up with him, then you're not a true Christian. So when the Gnostics came and they said that God is not, or Christ is not God in the flesh, when they said that we have fellowship with God, but we can still live in sin, and when they said you can be a Christian but never have a change of life, and now coming along and saying we don't have any love in our hearts, but we're still Christians, and he says you call that person a liar. No person, no murderer, he says, has eternal life abiding in him. Now, before you say that to somebody, you might want to back up a little bit so they can't land the first punch because people don't like being called liars, and they sure don't want to be called murderers. Uh, religious people that, that hold on to these, onto these strange doctrines and these gurus that they follow with golden plates and speak to angels, they don't like you calling them liars. So maybe you might want to approach that just a little bit differently. Just hand them the book of First John and say, here, read this and believe this because here is the truth. Now, what is our axiom then? What is our axiom of truth? Well, it's simply this. If it's new, it isn't true. Very simple. If it's new, it isn't true. Now, a few weeks ago, there was someone who came to the church, and he heard me preach about my disagreement with the charismatics about speaking in tongues. And I suppose he wasn't really mad about it, but he was open to tongues and and, uh, mystical revelations and, and speaking in angelic language. And my point in my conversation with him was, what for? What are you going to get from that that you don't get from God's Word? What are you going to get from that that you can't pick up the Word of God and find out about? If it's more than what's in God's Word, and if it's different from what's in God's Word, then it's not worth anything. If it's not what you heard from the beginning, and it's not already in God's Word, what's the point of it? Paul said, I'd rather speak five words with understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And he was talking about doing it the right way. So how much useless useless is it in the way that they do it today? Now, in the first century vernacular, I think that John and Paul would have said, all that's not worth a warm bucket of camel spit. So go back to the beginning. Go back to what you heard. Go back to what you've already been taught. If it's new, it isn't true. Now, to bring you back then to the main emphasis of this scripture, the teaching here is about love. You learn this from the beginning. It said it's about love. You know it. It's foundational. It's a, it's a fundamental part of Christianity. If you don't have love for your brother, then you aren't a Christian. Now, sometimes you have to take 
the claim of Christianity that people make with a grain of salt. Uh, when somebody gets mad and they leave the, leave the church because they're angry at another member and they refuse to give, uh, forgive them, you have to wonder whether that person is a Christian. And that's not uncommon. I suppose it's probably one of the biggest reasons that people leave the church. They get mad about something. They get mad at somebody, and they just get bitter with that, and they, and they just stay home. How do you judge that person? Well, we're actually given criteria for judging. You know, some people don't like that. They like to go back to, to Matthew there and, and where it says, Judge not lest you be judged, and that's the favorite scriptures. They know that probably more than they do John 3.16. They don't want anybody to judge them, but they don't understand what the scripture's talking about. This whole letter of 1 John is about this very thing. How do you judge who is a Christian and who is not? It's what it's about. So the whole book is about judging righteous judgment. So John gives us the criteria for judging, and here a test is about love. Now, we're going to move along just a little bit here. I'm going to give you the next point, but we're not going to go very far with this tonight. Uh, Point number two is the wickedness of hate, the wickedness of hate. The commandment that we receive from the beginning is that we should love one another. Now, John is going to start breaking that down, and he's going to go into the character of those who have uh, the character of their father, the devil, and those that are, have the character of their father, God. And it's a very interesting extreme that he goes to here to show this contrast. Those who do not show love are put into some very bad company. Now, before we get to that, though, we need to understand what kind of love we're talking about. Now, it's easy for people to say that they have love for others, and and their love might measure up to their own standard. The problem is that God is the one who sets the standard, and it turns out that that standard is too high for anyone but a Christian to reach. And you have to understand what John is showing here is a contrast. There's a contrast between these two different kinds of love or between hate and love, between people who say they love and who don't really love. And the love that he defines here cannot be different from what he's speaking of. So if you have a love that's other than this, then it's not what John's talking about. You see, we're trying to prove here the difference between who is true and who is false. And if people that are false have all the capabilities of a person who is true, then you're never going to find a contrast in them. But we do know there is a very definite contrast. Something has happened on the inside of of a person in order to reach the level that Jesus says we have to have. What he commands can only be accomplished by Christ being in us. Now let's look at that level of love that has to be present in order to pass the test. And we find it in a very familiar passage of John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus said... A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now here is the difficulty with this phrase, or this, this, these two verses. It's the phrase, as I have loved you. And I think that we find the hardest part of this, and what God had to overcome to love us. There's hatred and enmity. There's hostility and antagonism. There's aggression. Throw in about 200 more adjectives that are similar, and we have all of that in our hearts, and yet God was willing to send Christ to die for us. 
That's the kind of love that we're talking about. Now, you compare that to the kind of love that the disciples were used to. I mean, what they knew about love before Christ came. And the answer here to all of that is in the word new. He says, Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you. So in what sense was that commandment new? Well, the truth in itself, or the commandment in itself, rather, is not new because it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God gave it hundreds of years before this. Leviticus 19, verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. That's an old commandment. The newness of it is actually in the understanding of what the Old Testament actually meant by that. The Scripture said, You shall not bear a grudge against the children of thy people. And they understood that wrongly. They took that to mean anybody who's a Jew. And anybody who's outside is fair game. You can hate them. You can hold all the grudges that you want against them just as long as it's not one of your good fellow Jews. And so that meant to the disciples that Jesus is teaching that they had grown up hating all of these people, and now all of that has to change. They hated Romans because they were oppressed by the Romans. They hated the Samaritans. They're not pure Jews. They're mixed with the Gentiles, so they hate them. They hate some of the Jews because some of them are publicans, and they were collaborators with the Roman government, so they hated them. So essentially what they thought, the only people that you really have to love are people that are just like you. People that are politically and religiously and socially and racially just like you. They're the only ones that you're obligated to love. And that's how the world practices love today. And if you can get over the religious barriers and the racial barriers and all of that, if you can get rid of all of those barriers, you're still stuck with the biggest one of all, and that's you. It's the love of self. You can't overcome that, and that's the kind of love that you have to have to be like Christ. You have to be able to give up self, give up everything for somebody else. Now, we're going to get to that part of it a later time and talk about self more, but that is the biggest barrier that has to be overcome in order to love as Christ loved. So the new commandment is to begin understanding how Christ loved, going outside of self, considering the other person first, put others before self, and anything short of that is not the kind of love that the Bible speaks of. So unbelievers are not capable of that. An unbeliever is simply not capable of that. You you can't do this. Your, Your nature prevents it. You and I couldn't do it. Our nature prevents us from doing it before we come to know Christ. But Jesus said, by this, I mean, here's the criteria, by this all men shall know that you are my disciples. How? Well, you're going to step outside of your comfort zone. You're going to start loving people that are not like you. You're going to give up all of your natural prejudices, and you will love as I have loved you. How hard was that to do? Well, I'll tell you, it was hard enough that the Pharisees couldn't do it. Remember how Jesus gave them that great example, I mean, a beautiful illustration of the Good Samaritan. And he told them, who is the person that's a neighbor? Well, the neighbor was the Samaritan that went down there and and helped that guy who was left for dead and put him on his own horse and took him to a a place in order that uh, he could get healing and get taken care of, and he paid for that. And he did that for a person who never would have done it for him if their roles were reversed. Jesus illustrated it beautifully with the Good Samaritan. Jesus nailed them with that, and their best defenders of Pharisaical faith were left scurrying for cover. 
And it was even hard enough that when these disciples began to follow Jesus and they trusted him that they had trouble with it. I mean, this was a constant problem for them. And after Jesus arose and went back into heaven, they were still having problems with it. What did it take for the apostle Peter to finally give the gospel to Gentiles? Well, God had to come to him with an uncommon revelation. I mean, a dream in the night of a great sheet let down from heaven with all those unclean animals. And I won't go into that now, but you can read about it in Acts chapter 10. It took that kind of a vision, that kind of impression upon Peter's mind before he would go to Cornelius with the gospel and then come back to the other apostles and tell them God is saving Gentiles also. So this is a very difficult thing. You can't do it in your own strength. Unbelievers can't fake this. And if they try it for a while, they won't stick with it. They can't do it. Now, that kind of gets us going in the direction that John's going to take with this argument. Hatred is wickedness. It is not compatible with Christianity. You can't mix these two things together. And to go beyond that, you can't just stop negatively hating people. You have to positively love people. So you can't shift your mind into neutral, if that's possible, and still meet the commandment. You just can't do it. And so you have to go beyond And we'll see when you get down there to verse number 18 that John says we must love indeed, not just mouthing the words. And this was the problem. These people came uh, to John and mixed up the church or came to that church there and they were plaguing the people by just mouthing the words that they knew Christ. And in every test that John lays out here, he proves that it's not true. There is no demonstration that they're true followers of Christ. Now, we're going to leave it there tonight. Next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to get into this biblical example of hatred and the peculiar, well, maybe not peculiar, but the the, the horrible thing about this that people need to realize that every unbeliever is actually connected to the example that John's going to give her. Every unbeliever, you and I were just like it too, we're connected to the example that he's going to give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have to spend in your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your people who have come uh, to hear your word. I just ask you, Lord, you impress us with uh, what we've learned here. And, Lord, we look forward to, to finding out more about this scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the time to be together tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.